Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 uh, once again. No doubt some of you have heard the story over the past few weeks about a $44 billion offer to buy the social media company Twitter by Elon Musk. That offer was uh, recently threatened, however, by uh, controversy over fake accounts. Uh, it has been estimated that some 20 to 25 percent of accounts on Twitter are fake accounts. Those fake accounts are really propaganda accounts designed to amplify the message or the image of certain people uh, who are on there. In fact, some people have uh, estimated that nearly 50% of followers for prominent or high-profile people are fake accounts. Uh, uh, that these are all there intended to inflate the perception of how popular someone is or how many people are following them, but there's no one actually behind the account. In fact, if there are any, is there any activity or, or even any posts who are on the, that are on those accounts, it's just generated by bots, uh, just kind of picking and choosing words and phrases that it parrots back across the stream of a Twitter account. This, uh, as you might imagine, distorts the image of how maybe influential someone might be, distorts the image of how popular they are, how successful they might be in terms of reaching an audience. And, and in particularly in terms of these high-profile people, they sometimes pay tens of thousands of dollars in order to generate these accounts specifically for the purpose of giving the impression that they're more popular than they really are. Well, today we come to a similar kind of issue. We're dealing with the topic of fake followers. But these aren't fake followers on Twitter. These are fake followers of Jesus. These are people who glom on to Christianity or to the church or to the gospel, but they aren't really genuinely uh, uh, from the heart followers of Christ. And they aren't, they aren't the result of some sort of intentional scheme on the part of Jesus to generate the appearance of success, although that might be sometimes the motive of some preachers and some ministry who would gin up almost any kind of so-called Christian to follow them that they might want. But these fake followers attach themselves to Jesus out of confused or improper motives. And there aren't just a few of them. We don't know exactly what the percentage is, but through the centuries, there have literally been hundreds of thousands, millions upon millions, really, of these kind of fake followers, people who are only superficially attached to the truth, only superficially attached to the church. They briefly attach themselves, but their understanding of Jesus is shallow. Their understanding of the truth of God's word is shallow. Their motives are impure. And so eventually they fall away. They fall away. And we see this literally all the time. It's so frequent a phenomenon in the history of the church, it hardly needs to be illustrated because virtually everyone has witnessed it at some level in their relationship, some connection that they once had, someone they knew who 
thought that they were a Christian, claimed to be a Christian, said that they believed. But in time, they begin to question those beliefs. In time, they begin to turn their back on Jesus until they eventually fall away. Now, this kind of superficial response to the gospel is what Jesus is picturing in his parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. It's one of the kinds of responses that he's talking about here. He pictures it as one of the types of soil on which the seed of the truth of the gospel falls. These soils, as we mentioned when we started to look at this last week, these soils picture the conditions of people's hearts when they hear the Word of God. They're the various conditions of their heart, whether it is the hard-packed soil representing a totally unresponsive heart, or the weedy, or excuse me, the rocky soil representing the shallow heart, or the weedy soil representing the divided, distracted heart, or eventually the good soil represented the broken and receptive heart. And the point of all these parables, the point of this parable, along with all the parables of Matthew 13, is really to deal with what seems to be the apparent failure of the gospel message, the apparent failure of Jesus. It deals with what, what they would have uh, thought of in terms of their first century context, the failure of the kingdom. They were expecting a Messiah, they were expecting a king, and they were expecting a kingdom. And when that kingdom didn't manifest itself the way that they thought it would, when it didn't usher in a a period, a season, like they thought it would usher in, when none of that stuff happened, when it didn't have the widespread appeal that they expected it to have, it led to some disillusionment, some disappointment on the part of Jesus' followers. And so Jesus gives in Matthew 13 a whole series of parables, of stories that are focused largely on what you might say is the mystery of the rejection of God's kingdom, explaining why the kingdom appears to be unsuccessful at so many times, but ultimately why it will be triumphant in the end. As I said last week, it begins with the most memorable of all these parables, the parable of the sower, the parable of a farmer throwing his seed on the ground as he goes about his field, and it falls on various uh, types of of ground and uh, has various results that come from those seeds. And again, I'll remind you, as I said last week, the point of the parable is that there's nothing wrong with the seed. There's nothing wrong even with the sower, and there's nothing wrong with his method. This is just the way that you seeded your ground in those days. You didn't have super precise instruments. Uh, You just simply had a broadcast method. And the issue was not with the method. It wasn't with the seed or the sower. The issue is always with the soil and the condition of the soil. The condition of men's hearts, men and women as they hear the gospel, And ultimately, the different reasons why so many of them end up rejecting the gospel of Christ. They're all contained here. The reason they don't receive the message is not because of a deficiency in the message. It is a deficiency in their heart. 
And so this is outlining, we might say, the, the, the conditions, four conditions, really, of the human heart that determine their response to the Word of God. We have chosen, I've chosen to spend a few weeks looking at this in some detail to help give us as clear a profile as we can as we are out sowing the seeds, casting the seeds of the truth, understanding the various uh, obstacles and understanding the various conditions that will be in people's hearts as they hear. And last week we took a look at the pathway soil or the walkway soil or the hard packed soil that Jesus mentions in verse 4. Today we come to a second kind of soil, the shallow soil, the shallow heart, the shallow superficial response. This is what Jesus says in verse 3. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, since they had no root, they withered away. You can stop right there and jump down to verse 20 when Jesus gets into the explanation of this parable. He says, as for, the, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This uh, rocky soil, by the way, it doesn't refer to soil with stones in it. Any sort of self-respecting farmer would have cultivated out that kind of field. He would have removed all the stones that he could see or, or get to. But in Israel, like so much of the Middle East, there were, there were beds of limestone rock that ran underneath the soil, very close to the surface. Such that when you dug just an inch or two deep, you would hit this bedrock underneath the topsoil. And the seed that would fall on these shallow places would begin to germinate. The roots would descend and soon reach this rock and have nowhere to go. And these plants would uh, immediately respond by generating upward foliage, making them... Sometimes in the early stages, the most spectacular examples of your crop. But as soon as the sun came out, these plants would be the first to die because their roots had no access to moisture. Long before they could bear fruit, long before they could really be of any productive value, they faded away. And Jesus, of course, is comparing all of this to those who hear the gospel superficially. And again, like we said last week, this kind of soil, this kind of person, this kind of response, this kind of condition can be understood really, um, or we could examine it, we could profile it, I should say, two ways. We could, first of all, think about the condition of this kind of heart, and then secondly, the causes of this kind of heart. So speaking, first of all, of the condition, this shallow soil, this response to the gospel that comes without any depth of understanding or reflection on what discipleship really means, this 
represents the kind of enthusiastic follower who responds quickly to the Word of God. He, uh, he says this is the one who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy, immediately responds with enthusiasm. This is the, uh, the early sprouts, if you will, within the garden. You see positive responses. You see encouraging signs. You hear the kind of words you want to hear. You see the kind of actions you want to see. But it involves no real deep thought as to what all of this stuff is founded on. It is emotional, it is enthusiastic, it is instant with excitement, but it's without any actual significant commitment to discipleship. These are the people who hear the message, focus, if you will, maybe on its joy, maybe on its warmth, maybe on its fellowship, maybe on its good feelings, maybe on its connectivity to the people around them. But they don't really contemplate the hard demands that come with it. They just jump on the bandwagon for the good things that they think might come. But Jesus says as soon as tribulation or as soon as persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. They're Initial burst of enthusiasm is untested, it's untried. They've not had to deal with the hatred that the world has always had for the Word of God. They've not had to deal with the animosity that the world has always had for Christ. They profess their faith, but they haven't considered the coming rejection, whatever the distress might be that's coming, whatever the seasons of ridicule. And when those seasons do come, they have no endurance. Because there's no root. Meaning that this stuff that they are professing to believe isn't coming from their heart. It doesn't have a, a taproot, we would say, going down below the surface. It is all exterior. It is all superficial. They've not thought through their faith, why they believe the things that they say they believe, why they really think that the words of Christ are true and the words of the world are false. Underneath the shallowy layer of soil, that apparent enthusiasm, there still remains a bedrock of rebellion and resistance to God's truth. The topsoil of their Christian talk sits thinly over a slab of limestone defiance that never has really understood its sin. They've never really been confronted with the issues of sin. They've never really had to be forced to deal with the issues of pride in their heart. There's no real contrition. There's no real brokenness. There's no real sense of need for repentance. It's all just surface emotion. And so it all quickly dies. This kind of response can bring incredible discouragement for those who are trying to share the gospel because these people who profess faith in Christ with this burst of enthusiasm can bring an equal kind of excitement into your own life. You feel like the farmer looking out over his field who can hardly believe the abundance and the fullness and the thickness of his crop. 
springing up so quickly. Everything you seem to be spreading appears to be sprouting. And you get very excited about how easy and how rich this coming harvest is going to be. And you spend all kinds of time. You pour yourself into these people, discipling them, meeting with them, praying for them. Their faith seems to be encouraging. In fact, you look at the field and they sometimes seem to be standing taller and stronger than everyone else around them because they spring up so quickly. It's just the fact that they haven't really faced the trial. They haven't really faced the world. I guess you might say these uh, so-called Christians are like inflation. They're just transitory, right? I looked up transitory, so I knew what that meant. It does not last, or it lasts only a short time. Not permanent, not enduring. Well, these are transitory believers. They're short-lived temporary believers. Paul describes them in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. They have the shape. They have the form. They have a form of reverence. They have a form of commitment. They have a form of, of compliance, but it is all without power. It is all without root. It is all without depth. It is all without internal working of the Holy Spirit. It is form without reality, structure without life, shape without color. It is just a silhouette of Christianity. These are spiritual fakes. No love for God, no love for His truth, no love for God's church. In fact, the only love they have is for themselves. It's the way Paul describes them there in 2 Timothy 2. They will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Proverbs 26 describes this type of person like, it says, uh, like the glazed covering of an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart, with an ungodly heart, with an unholy heart. They're like pieces of cheap pottery with a thin covering of silver dross. Dross is you may know is that metal, the impurities of the metal that kind of float to the top whenever you're smelting silver. It's, a, it's got kind of a silvery gloss to it, but it's not really of any worth or value. And, and ancient potters would scoop that off of the top of the smelting process in order to kind of glaze over their pottery to give it a silvery kind of a look. But Solomon compares this zealous talk, this enthusiastic talk to this silver dross, it is as cheap and as deceptive and as worthless as this expensive looking but essentially thinly covered piece of pottery. Nothing more than cheap oxide. As we say, not uh, all that glitters is not gold, right? That is what you have here. So the Bible speaks about this in a number of places. This kind of 
temporary faith, this kind of superficial faith, and it helps us outline some of the reasons for this shallowness and takes us really to our second point this morning, the causes of this kind of a shallow heart. And there are no doubt a number of them. You could trace them out because the circumstances and the, and the uh, sort of uh, uh, environment of every person is different, but I think most of the reasons can be grouped under four categories. Uh, to begin with, there is a failure to count the cost of this commitment to Christ. Jesus talks about him falling away because of the tribulation, because of the persecution that arises on account of the word. So these people have made a naive profession of faith, a naive commitment. They didn't take time to consider what it might mean for them to actually have to defend their newfound faith. They're like the people Jesus describes in Luke 14. They're the kind of person who wanted to build a tower. But Jesus says did not, they did not first sit down to count the cost, whether there was enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. And all who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. And so the point of that whole story that Jesus is telling is that when you are, uh, when you are approaching something big, When you're approaching something important, when you're approaching something very visible like building a tower, you give consideration to whether or not you will be able to fulfill your commitments to it, whether you will be able to follow through. Towers in those days especially were built primarily for the sake of visibility. They were were watchtowers. They were towers over cities or sometimes over fields or over things that you were guarding. And and they were a major undertaking, very visible when you did them. And they weren't cheap. They were costly. Construction in those days was all out of some sort of masonry. You couldn't just throw up a few sticks of steel. Everything had to be supported down through these very heavy elements and so there was a significant commitment financially a significant commitment in terms of time and labor a lot of risk as you started to lay the foundation and started your construction and if you stop somewhere along the way your neighbors would undoubtedly think what a waste this guy surely He thought far enough ahead to know whether or not he had enough money to buy the materials to finish this thing. It brings into question your maturity, your wisdom, if you started something that you can't finish. As someone said, you end up with a half-finished building but a permanent monument to your stupidity. Jesus is applying all this to discipleship. He's saying you wouldn't want to uh, expose your life to that kind of ridicule, this monument that uh, to your to your inability to think through things carefully, to think through things deeply. You wouldn't want to start down that path and quit and be rightfully mocked for doing so. This isn't just a superficial decision. This isn't just some sort of quick emotional fix because you had a bad night or a bad feeling. This isn't a weekend hobby. 
You have to assess deeply your ability for follow-through. It will cost you, he's saying. It will cost you. It will cost your relationships. It might cost your employment. It might cost your comfort. It might cost your finances. It might cost your life. It will be costly if you want to build this tower. And so make sure you're not just responding temporarily. Make sure you're not just responding emotionally. If this is something that you start, make sure you're ready to finish it. That's why it's so dangerous when you are sharing the gospel that you make sure you're not manipulating people into these kind of superficial commitments, which are so easy to do, particularly if they're impressionable people, if they're immature people, if they're children, if they're at a particular point of emotional vulnerability, or if you kind of create the right mood with your music and your lights and everything going on, and so you can just sort of persuade them to make some sort of temporal commitment. You want to make sure when you're sharing the gospel that whoever is responding understands the gravity of the decision that they're making. Jesus even goes on with another story. He says, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, doesn't first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000, or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. No reasonable king would go out and put himself in that kind of danger when there is almost certain, certain defeat. So Jesus is saying, look honestly. Assess whether or not you're operating at a superficial, a superficial level, just, just some sort of thinly covered up hope. Listen, in case you haven't realized this, hope, bare and unvarnished hope is not a strategy for life. Hope in Christ is a good strategy, but hope, just kind of empty hope is not a strategy of life. And that so many people approach all of life that way. They throw their hope here and there thinking that just around the corner, some other scheme, some other design is going to work out and it's untested. All of it is untested. And as soon as there's momentary discomfort and momentary pain, they flee, they turn away, their lifelong dream becomes something else and then something else and then something else. They're like a ship tossed in the sea from one direction to the next. And for them, the church and Christianity is just one other passing fad. Jesus is saying, look, this stuff is weightier. It's weightier than building a house. It's weightier than choosing a spouse. It's weightier than any other decision you'll ever make. And so you need to treat it that way. It doesn't need to be entered into lightly. And so when people come to consider the gospel, you dare not tell them. It's just a few words. It's just a little simple prayer. You just kind of say these few things. You kind of, you know, mouth these 
few commitments, and then we'll worry about all the other stuff later, how you work all that stuff out. No, you, you get them to think down the road. You warn them and tell them the cost so that it's a comprehensive commitment when they make it. There's a second category I think we could identify when it comes to the causes why people make shallow commitments. And it's the favoring of praise from people, particularly favoring the praise of people over the praise of God. John speaks about this kind of shallow commitment in John 12, 42, when he says, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So these people were willing, uh, um, you know, all things being equal, they were willing to accept a lot of the truths of Jesus Christ. They, they, they uh, had, a, you might say at that level, an, a superficial understanding, a right understanding of who he was, They obviously experienced him historically in the moment. They were eyewitnesses of him. They had seen some of his miracles. They had, you would say, all the right facts about him. But at the end of the day, even though they had all that information, at the end of the day, they would rather have the approval and the honor from others rather than the honor from God. Again, this wasn't a deficiency in Jesus or in his message. It was really... The real issue was their love of approval. They had a fear that they would be put out of the synagogue in this situation. They would be put out of the, what we would say, the primary social institutions of their society. They believed the right facts, but they didn't love God or the approval of God. They were locked into a system whereby somehow they convinced themselves that this kind of human approval that they craved was of transcendent value. That it was worth risking not only their entire life, but their entire eternal soul on the approval of those around them. And so they were willing to turn their back on the truth in order to garner the favor of these people. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus had asked the Pharisees, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from only God? How, how could you possibly believe? You can't believe when your focus is not on what is true. That's what he's saying. You can't believe if your primary concern is not about what is true. If your primary concern is about what is accepted, if your primary concern is about what is going to be uh, sort of uh, uh, popular among those around you, how can you believe? You can't because you're no longer motivated by what is necessary for belief, which is an absolute determination to know the truth. You're too busy seeking glory from others. What's really at the heart of it is an internal sense that you ought to be admired. Which is another way of saying that there's no sense of your sin. There's no sense of humility. There's no sense of lostness. 
that has you falling on your face and crying out to God, telling Him that you've messed up your life. It's just superficial sort of accolades and pats on the back and support from those around you who ultimately are not the determiners of truth or eternity. You can't believe if that's all you're worried about. You can't believe unless you are dead set on learning the truth. There's a third category when it comes to this kind of shallow, superficial commitment. We could just call it focusing on temporal benefits. Those who are eager to reap some sort of temporary benefit, some sort of social or emotional or superficial blessing that comes from this. Again, in John 5, Jesus talked about those who are willing to, quote, rejoice for a while in the light of John, John's preaching, John the Baptist's preaching. So, so John had come and and they were willing for a while to acknowledge him as a true prophet. They were willing to revel, if you will, in his ministry. They went out even to the desert where he was, and then some of them were even lining up to get baptized. They were willing temporarily to identify with his message of repentance. They would do that for a season, probably because they thought it would lead to some sort of blessing from God, or maybe they even thought that God would respond and overthrow the Romans, improve their circumstances, do something in their society. They're like those who came to listen to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 33, verse 30, they come to you, God says, as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their own advantage. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. They just jump on the bandwagon. They just sort of adopt the um, behaviors and the attitudes of every Uh, of others around them, everyone doing, embracing the beliefs, rallying around, if you will, the sort of public sphere. That phrase, by the way, jumping the bandwagon, I I was thinking about that this week and I was kind of curious, where does that come from? I looked it up. It it actually is from the presidential campaign of Zachary Taylor in 1848, who was running for, for, for president of the United States and floundering until a local clown who had a wagon he pulled around the city with a musical ensemble, invited Taylor to ride on top of the wagon. And of course, the noise generated a crowd who followed along, the early ones coming for the music, but the latter ones actually thinking that people were rallying to Taylor's message. And they just sort of They just sort of got caught up in the fervor without even knowing what they were following. They were jumping on the bandwagon. And it became a kind of political phrase in society. The temporary excitement of what everyone else is doing. Well, there are temporary fans who just sort of want to get the, uh, you know, get the benefit. They're like the, you know, the fans of the, uh, you know, successful team that go out and buy the hats and the shirts and the bumper stickers, but they couldn't tell you anybody on the team or who starts or 
or, uh, you know, who even the coach is. Sometimes they honestly don't even know the sport that they're playing, you know. And then there are those of us who know not only the coach and the starting players, we can tell you the second string and the third string and the uh, history of the team and, uh, you know, everything that, uh, that's gone on in the season and all the key plays and all that stuff. They're not a true fan like that. They're just sort of a temporary fan who just gets caught up in the euphoria and they feel like there's some sort of social benefit that they might get out of this. They're fake fans. They want to be associated temporarily with the winning team. These are fake disciples. They just want to be associated with Christ when they sense that it's popular. It might benefit them, but as soon as the trials come, as soon as they find themselves in the midst of a crowd that's no longer applauding, as soon as they feel like it's not going to advance their cause or their brand, they're gone. They're two-faced, they're hypocritical, and they're shallow. And then finally, a fourth category you could identify that causes these people to come with shallow commitments is that they just simply forget God's grace. They forget God's grace. They do experience God's blessings, mostly because they've been associated with other Christians. They've been around other Christians who are walking in God's ways and reaping those benefits. And they, because they've been around, they also experience some of those benefits, but they never really understand the abundance of God's mercy that produced all of that. And so as soon as the benefits fade, so does their commitment because they forget everything that God has done for them. Hebrews 3, the writer says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Take care, he says, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. These were people who saw God's works for 40 years. They saw God's works. Psalm 106 verse 7, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. And yet you saved them for your namesake, that you might make known your mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea. It became dry. He led them through in the deep as through a desert. And so he saved them from the hand of the foe. He redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Then they believed His word. Then they sang His praise. But they soon forgot His works. And they did not wait for His counsel. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness. They put God to the test. Psalm 78 says they flattered him with their mouths. They lied with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast and they weren't faithful to his covenant. 
At first glance, when all the blessings are coming, when everything is running smooth and all the money's in the account and all the sort of uh, 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 desires are lined up, at first glance, these people are sincere. They're repenting. They're doing everything. They're giving the kind of praise to God that you would expect. But in spite of their initial favorable impressions... There's no deep sense of their own need. There's no deep sense of their own personal guilt. They are doing nothing more than presuming on the mercy of God. They're presuming on the gracious character of God. They assume that it's going to be there like the sun rising the next day whenever they want it. They assume that there's going to be there. God's blessings always because they assume their own worthiness for it. There's never a sense of contrast between God's good character and their own wicked hearts. And so they just presume God's favor. And they fall away. And the writer says, don't be like that. Don't be one of these shallow superficial people. Don't be one of these people who don't count the cost. Don't be one of these people who are concerned about everything else except the truth. A shallow attachment to religion because your desires at the end of the day are shallow. Your pursuits at the end of the day are shallow. There's only one thing, one thing that matters, truth. One thing. If you could just get your heart on that one thing, a desire to know what is true, and then you seek after that truth, if that is your desire and that is your heart, you will let all of that other stuff fall by the wayside, no matter what the consequences and no matter what the heat of the sun, you will let all that stuff fall by the wayside because if you are sincere about knowing what is true, you will only find those answers in God. He is the only creator of the universe He is the only maker of you and your soul. He's the only one who knows all things, and he's the only one who controls eternity. So if you are deep enough to want to find that, you will send the taproot all the way down until it strikes the nourishing truth of God's gospel. And you will stay there, the Scripture says. And you will endure the unpopularity and the ridicule and the struggles and the trials and the seasons with and the seasons without blessing. And even when the momentary fainting happens and the momentary lapses happen, you respond with brokenness and humility and teachability And a desire to know God. Your faith is never destroyed. That's the contrast. There are people that you're going to minister the gospel to. And this is the ways they'll respond. They'll have all that initial burst 
But at the end of the day, they're just shallow. Unfortunately, shallow. And unfortunately, still without God in the world. Father, we're grateful for this. This look into the hearts of men and women, knowing even our own heart. We were there. Some of us initially responded with a superficial, shallow commitment until, until, years later, having faced the mess that we made of our life, we finally hungered for the truth. Well, we're so grateful that you gave it to us. You revealed yourself. You made your truth available so that our hearts could tap into it and be nourished by it and be transformed and flourish from it. Our hearts, Lord, our prayers for those that we minister the gospel to, that somehow, some way, that their heart would work around the bedrock of rebellion underneath, the superficial, shallow pursuits of their life. But by the power of your Spirit, that their hearts would go deep, deep into the message of Christ and into his saving and gracious work, redeeming their souls redeeming their life, giving them all that the gospel has to give, both now and for eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.